Forgive yourself. Remember to forgive yourself. <laughs> Thank you. Forgive. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good, a senior writer at Wired, and I'm here with my co-host, Wired senior editor, Michael Calori. Hello, hello. I'm hello. over here, though. I was just going to say, <laughs> rather, I should probably start saying, and over there, uh, in a different home, is Wired senior editor, Michael Calori. We are recording this remotely for the third week in a row, so if it sounds a little bit different, that is why we hope that you'll forgive and that you will still get some helpful information from this podcast. Also joining us remotely is Wired senior correspondent Adam Rogers. Adam, thanks for being here. I'm I'm grateful that we are all able to see each other's faces in tiny boxes. I miss you all. Yes, that is how COVID-19 has fundamentally changed the way we're working, the way we're communicating, and of course, it's changed a lot more than that, too. So later on in the show, we're going to talk about the ways that COVID-19 has changed how we're communicating from the tone of emails to how we're using video chats. But first, on the podcast today, we're going to take a look at the shortage of medical equipment in the U.S. For weeks now, medical practitioners at hospitals and other facilities have said that they don't have enough masks, ventilators, tests, things that they need to combat the spread of the virus and to treat it. So we want to talk about how doctors and nurses are struggling to cope with the lack of resources, especially since the peak of this pandemic is currently expected to come sometime around mid-April. And we want to talk about why we've ended up in this situation. So we've brought Adam on to help us make sense of this. Adam, how would you describe the current state of available medical equipment in the U.S.? Desperate but separated. Um, all, all eyes are on... New York City right now is a as a hotspot of the pandemic, but the expectation for from modelers and from public health experts is that that will move either to encompass other places, either it'll it will peak in in New York this week or at the at the end of this week or the beginning of next, or that it will stay in New York and and move to other places as well. And and where that is, you can use different metrics to try to sort of guess, predict, model be informed about where that might happen. But what that means is that none of those places have, if if things are at their worst and, and without kind of social distancing measures and the ways that we try to slow this down to, as everyone now says, flatten those curves, that there are not um, enough hospital beds, enough critical care beds, enough ventilators for people whose lungs can't breathe on their own, enough uh, personal protective equipment, PPEs for healthcare workers who are supposed to change their respirators or N95 masks, which is a level of filtration that we can talk about, and eye protection and face shields and scrubs and and kind of uh, virus-proof uh, clothes, basically, with every patient every time they do it. So they, the, the usage is you get thousands and thousands of patients runs into the tens of thousands of stuff. And, and nobody um, was prepared for that. Um, you know, we have heard a lot from uh, federal officials lately about the national stockpile and the status of the national stockpile. Can you tell us briefly what is the national stockpile and why does it not have enough stuff for everybody? Well, after I, I may get some of this history wrong, but it is certainly true that after September 11th, the terrorist attacks of, of September 11th, 2001, and then the, the, the anthrax um, attacks, the the sending by mail of anthrax to um, places in in Washington and elsewhere, um, that, that that people who made these kind of um, 
federal policies for preparedness started to do all sorts of uh, tabletop exercises, what you would call a war game, to try to understand what the needs would be if something like this really broke big. If there was a, a, a large-scale respiratory infection that spread globally or through the United States. And mostly they were looking at, at bioweapons, at terrorists doing this intentionally, but the, the effect, once the, once the outbreak starts, it, it moves the same way. And what they, what they found immediately was just, the resources weren't there. So in the interest of being prepared for any kind of, of national disaster or international disasters, they started stockpiling, the government started stockpiling stuff. And, and especially for a respiratory outbreak, that stuff were things like PPEs and ventilators. So I have reports, I've been looking back at my own, I've been covering this stuff for a long time, and I've been looking back at my own files, and I have, I have reports of these, uh, of these exercises, of these warnings. There was a report that came out of Johns Hopkins called Dark Winter at one point. They all sound really scary, um, rightly so. And they all say the same things. There's no central command. There's not enough equipment. We have to put this stuff in a warehouse and be ready. And so at various times, the, you know, the government, federal government has, has spent the money to, to stockpile stuff, to have big warehouses full of things. And uh, in the last, um, you know, over the last 10 years, that emphasis has started to fade somewhat. And then certainly in the last three, the, this, this administration, the Trump administration has not seen that apparently as much of a priority. So for example, the New York Times broke the story that many of the ventilators, which we don't have enough of, but the ventilators that were in the um, in that national stockpile weren't maintained, that the contract had lapsed and they weren't being maintained. So they have to be fixed. And this, you know, this is all like warehousing tons and tons of stuff is costly and it requires maintenance and it's boring and nobody can tell you're doing it when you don't need them. And And it happens at a time when almost every other uh, kind of manufacturing and uh, service process is all like just in time now. It's all operating on these very thin, uh, if any, margins of not just like you don't have warehouses full of stuff. You keep a supply chain moving. Um, and so maintaining warehouses full of stuff is like the boring work of government. And it just, it hasn't been done to the extent that something like like this would have um, necessitated. Even though there have been, there's, there was signal out there. The, the, the there were, there have been two, um, outbreaks of respiratory coronaviruses internationally in the last 20 years, right? There was SARS and there was MERS. And those were the international public health community saw those and said, we know what's going to happen. This is what, this is how it's going to look. It's going to come out of China and it's going to move internationally before we can get ahead of it. And unless we do certain things and what it begins to look like is we, we haven't done them or we did them and then we let them lapse. Adam, another uh, story that the New York Times published was about how basically how big business affected ventilator manufacturing over the past several years. There was this small Southern California company that was commissioned by the U.S. government to make ventilators in the early 2010s um, following the H1N1 outbreak. And then there was an acquisition from a multi-billion dollar medical device company. The project was stalled. And it just feels like increasingly we're seeing cracks exposed in big business and privatized healthcare. Which kind of makes me wonder where should the very urgent solutions for ventilators actually come from right now? Should it be coming from the government? Should it be coming from the private sector? Who should we be looking to for leadership in terms of making the ventilators and making the ones we already have work? I think if you had asked me that uh, in the in our cafeteria back when we were still allowed to be in person with each other back before all this had started, probably all of us would have a, a slightly different answer to that question, depending on our priors and our politics. Um, I think that when you're in the, in the midst of, um, of a pandemic as we are, I, I, I think it's 
I think someone would be hard pressed to say that the the motive of who can do this, who can make a ventilator cheapest and then charge the most for it, um, that's preposterous at this moment to me. So what that requires is that you then you you have to have some central authority come in and, and nationalize a production cycle, and and that's really something that we just have have walked away from that whole idea in this country for a lot of different reasons. And again, even the three of us could argue about what those reasons are and whether they're, whether they're right or wrong, but this is the moment where things are supposed to flip. And so people who will remark on how, um, like, well, in world war two, you know, all of the production lines for cars turned over to making ships and, and fighter planes or bombers and stuff. And it's true. Although that took a long time in the, and the construction the manufacturing methods were very different and it's very difficult now to imagine a, a car maker changing its assembly lines to make ventilators now look, some car like ford has said it's going to i guess and 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 uh it's it's very easy to imagine that some of the same parts are shared in common and that manufacturers can make sure that the parts could get to the people who make ventilators but because there are 50 states who all need these things because public health is largely run by states not at the federal level in when it's not an emergency and because there are um, uh, a bunch of different companies and who all have different needs, someone has to set those priorities. Um, And that's, that's a kind of centralization. To me, that seems, it seems very obvious that what's supposed to happen is a federal entity is supposed to say, clearly we need tens of thousands of ventilators and they're going to have to be in one place and then they're going to have to be in another place. So we need to have them made and then moved and then moved again. Somebody has to be in charge of that. And right now it seems like nobody is. So what about the little guy in this scenario? Uh, You know, in the past few days, we've seen a lot of people online sharing uh, open source designs uh, for ventilators and other types of hospital equipment, people with 3D printing machines, people who own CNC mills, people who are just really good with machines uh, feel like they can help and they have been helping. Um, Is this going to help ease the pressure? Well, first of all, it's, it is wonderful and very and like entrepreneurial and american in the best sense when you you see somebody who says i'm an engineer and i know how to make stuff let me help i want to help that's awesome right uh but it also does run up in against some of the same obstacles that have happened again and again as the uh, the way we currently think about technological innovation and how it's funded has run into trying to work in the biosciences which is that what you really don't want to do is have like a half-baked beta out in the world trying to save somebody's life because it'll work as often as a beta does, which means people will die. Um, so it, for example, the, the, the early, early efforts of people saying like, well, I can 3d print stuff. Why don't I just make more masks? And it became quickly apparent that like, well, masks are actually really complicated and they're really kind of like N95 masks have to be made by people with really giant, big assembly lines because they're, there's like approvals and licensing, but also because the filtration textile is a, a, a melt blown, non-woven polypropylene that's made on giant uh, electrical looms that, that like blow it out into the world and let it electrostatically kind of self-assemble. That's not something that you do on a CNC mill. Um, much less inserting that into a, a, a mask that then has to have certain has to meet certain regulations so that it doesn't allow pathogens to pass through it. And that's true of PPEs, and that's and certainly true of ventilators that are supposed to keep people breathing and have to be reliable at a certain level and have certain you know oxygen partial pressures and all the things that keep somebody alive are are hard to make. And you also want them to be regulated. It can't just be sort of well, I made one. 
I'll bring my own DIY ventilator to the hospital if I have to go there. You don't you don't want that. So how do then do those um, how then do those people who are whose hearts are in the exact right place then get to help? And I I don't know that anybody's figured that out really yet, except that they start to spontaneously self-assemble themselves into larger and larger units who can then provide resources, who can maybe help figure out easier designs. This was all stuff that was supposed to happen before there was actually a pandemic going on. There was part of the the project that Lauren mentioned was to actually make a simpler to use, simpler to operate, simpler to transport and store a ventilator. That was what that small company was was doing. The government was trying to do it. And they got the implication of that story was they got crushed by a larger company that didn't want the competition. Adam, to get back to masks really quickly before we take a break, there's been a lot of conversation around whether or not we should all be wearing masks. Unfortunately, we're in a position right now where we're in one of the richest countries in the world and we don't have the kind of masks that we need, but there are a lot of homemade efforts being made right now. And so I'm kind of wondering how effective homemade masks are. Are they better than nothing? Should people be fashioning these at home? Like what what should we do at this point? Well, you were probably part of some of the conversations on the Wired Slack about that as we were preparing to and then ran Ferris Jabber's story um, about how to think about homemade masks, masks that are either surgical masks or even ones that you make at home that are kind of like a surgical mask that may have some kind of interfacing between two layers of fabric. And the 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 science on sort of, I think everybody kind of acknowledges that the N95s ought to be for the healthcare workers, but then the surgical masks, well, there's a shortage of those too, and those should be for healthcare workers too. But if there was a way to have masks at home, like you'd make them yourself that didn't cause a shortage, maybe that would do something. And the question is, does that keep you from coughing virus onto people if you are unknowingly infected because so much of the infection seems now to be spread by people who are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic or does it protect you from people who have it that seems probably not to be the case but then you get into a lot of very complicated science about how large the droplets are that have the virus in them and how far they go and what they can get through and what they can't and how long you can have a mask on and whether taking a mask on and off makes you more likely to get to actually have the particle the virus get into your mucous membranes versus not messing with the mask at all and just washing your hands a lot and that's all science that is to my eye and and Many of my learned colleagues disagree with me in either direction. To my eye, that science is, let us say, still in progress. It is it, it is equivocal. And it, it, people are saying things like, well, maybe it helps a little. And so anything that helps a little is what we should be doing uh, as long as it doesn't hurt. But I do think there's some possibility that it hurts too, that some people will be will be are increasingly likely to be infected because they're fiddling with a mask or not wearing it right. So <laughs> what's going to happen here is the social forces are about to take over. Los Angeles's mayor has advised people to wear masks that they make themselves when they go outside. There are other places where those orders are coming down. There's a sense that there are that some of the areas, uh, parts of Asia that have been more successful in dealing with the pandemic are also places where culturally people wear masks out. And so maybe that was one of the factors. So I have a feeling that um, the cultural mode is about to get ahead of the science in some respects. My, my colleague, Marin McKenna, who's one of the great outbreak reporters um, working today has uh, has called that protection theater um, or protection cosplay I'm sorry is what Marin referred to it as and it's possible that that's what it is but uh, who doesn't love a cosplayer all right on that note we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to talk about etiquette during a pandemic not having to do with masks but having to do with your digital communications Welcome back to Gadget Lab. 
I hope you're well. I hope you're doing well and that you and your family are healthy in these unprecedented times. If you have an email account, chances are you've seen that phrase about a million times by now. The pandemic has changed how people are communicating, whether it's with your friends or a colleague or really a virtual stranger. And an email that might have taken two minutes to write off pre-pandemic now takes a lot longer as you're trying to work out the right balance of sincerity, professionalism, acknowledging what's going on. And it led me to wonder this week whether or not our emails have fundamentally changed. Okay, so Mike, I'm going to toss this to you for a second. Admit it, you've written some emails that sound like this over the past few weeks. I have, you know, and as a person who is already like a chronic oversharer on digital communications, I tend to be a little bit long-winded, but I do feel like, you know, when the first couple of weeks happened, we were all wishing each other well, like overly wishing each other well over email and, and even over Slack, but uh, that t- that seems to have cooled off a little bit, like in the last, uh, at least this week, I feel like it's cooled off. We're all sort of adjusting to the new normal. Um, but you tell me, Lauren, because you wrote the story about this this week. Yeah, so I was noticing over the past few weeks that I was receiving a lot more emails that had some type of well-wish or acknowledgement of coronavirus in the beginning. I noticed that I was sending them. I saw on Twitter that people were starting to either gripe about the kind of emails that they were getting or they were showing appreciation for the fact that people were sending them well wishes. One of my favorite tweets was from a, a Yale student who who wrote, emails now be like, I hope you're staying safe, sheltered in place, stocked with toilet paper, healthy during these absolutely unprecedented, wild, chaotic, terrifying times. Just wanted to follow up, you know, which is another thing too that we have to acknowledge that even though people are sending uh, their best thoughts via email right now. Email is still a tool that we use to get stuff done in a lot of cases. Sometimes you're on personal threads. One person I spoke to for this story said he's on personal threads that he's finding really comforting during this time. And and those are a little bit different. But for the most part, many of us are using email to to conduct business. And so we're seeing more and more of these caveats being thrown in. Like, I just want to acknowledge that I'm aware of what's going on and put this into perspective, but I still need to get this thing done. I do think, well, look, people are still trying to sell stuff to people now, and that's weird um, for a lot of reasons. But, you know, I say this all the time, but the, the central insight of disaster sociology and of thinking about how human beings behave in times of disaster, which is where we're at, is that they help each other. We, we come together. Um, and no matter how much elite panic you let yourself see of like, oh, I'm worried about riots and, you know, gun sales have gone up and I'm going to hoard toilet paper and all these things that are bad. The truth is that human beings seek even more connection than we usually do in, in times like the, in un- unprecedented times, like the ones that we're in, because of course they are precedented and that's what happens. And, and we, um, we're better than we think. I have found myself overly emotive <laughs> with people who, with whom I am, you know, have professional relationships, but no more than that. And, and them too. And I think that that's good. We should be talking about how this hurts because it does hurt. It does. And one of the things I've noticed, Adam, I don't know if you've experienced this or Mike, but that it's a way of extending or emphasizing the relationships you already had in place. So some people I spoke to for this story, uh, 
in particular, the creator of Ruby on Rails, um, questioned the authenticity of people and brands sending emails like this right now. But I have found that if you already had a really personal relationship with somebody or you had a very positive working relationship with them where you didn't always talk about business or the thing that you were tackling together, you sometimes would talk about your lives and share these personal moments that when they send best wishes or hope you're well and healthy via email, it comes across as more sincere in some ways than somebody who you've had no interaction with beforehand or a brand or business you really have no connection to sending you a more emphatic email. That In those cases, it tends to feel a little bit more like a boilerplate, whereas if you already have a relationship ongoing with somebody, it's it's a continuation of that personal relationship. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I could personally do uh, without hearing any more from my yoga studio or from LinkedIn at these times. Um, but the thing that I have been noticing is that I've been I've been rekindling old friendships. Like I've been reaching out to people who I went to college with, uh, who I haven't spoken to or seen in in years and years. You know, and like I have friends who live in uh, rural Montana and rural Vermont and like you know uh, Hudson Valley in the middle of nowhere. And I've been reaching out to them partially just to find out, like, you know, how things are in their area. Are they as weird as they are here in San Francisco? Maybe. But also just like, how you doing? How have you been? What's new? (laughs) Do you have children now that you worry about? Uh, You know, and um, it's also been really nice to reconnect with uh, my older relatives because they're all checking in with each other, too. There are some email threads going around in my family with all the the older people in my family um, and all my cousins and everybody sending pictures and, you know, talking about food. Uh, It's been it's been weird to come together with people so distant. And I do believe that, you know, especially for people who aren't equipped to do Zoom, uh, that email is the medium of choice for this. It makes sense because it's asynchronous. There's very little pressure involved in getting everybody together. Uh, it's easy to say something thoughtful over email in a way that it isn't when you're looking at somebody on a screen. Right, and there's certainly an argument to be made that right now emails are better for posterity and for remembering what we're going through than than a million different IMs or WhatsApp chats or Zooms or whatever, you know, we'll have these really poignant, meaningful conversations with some people in our lives right now. And if that happens to happen over email and we all get through this, someday you might be glad you have those emails. And you might not feel the same way about other communication forms that are just leapfrogging email right now in terms of utility. So one of the questions I had as I was working on this story, well, is there a better way to write emails? I mean, maybe in a few weeks, we'll see everybody just sort of drops off this appendage of hope you're well and healthy, but maybe it'll keep happening. And and is there a way for us to just be better about this? So I called up Randy Malamud. He is a professor of English at Georgia State University, and he's also the author of a book called Email. And He admits that he is not a big fan of email to begin with. He believes that we're sort of all stuck in these what he calls philosophies of how we email generally. And he notes in his book that everybody thinks they're the better emailer and everyone else is doing it wrong. Right. We're like super smart and succinct and get to the point and and like practically poetic in all of our own emails. But everyone else is stiff and long winded and doing it the wrong way. Right. But he said that he believes that even though right now it feels like things are changing in our email communications, that it's not going to fundamentally change, that we're all sort of still going to be stuck in our philosophies. And he did have some advice for how we could be better about it. 
if you want to write a better email, write fewer of them and write less and write more thoughtfully and uh, and you know, do a draft and put it aside for a few minutes and come back and edit and and think about the person that you're writing to and and you know picture her face and and think about what her face will look like when she sees what you're reading and and how do you think she might respond um, and just sort of ways to to personalize and and to get beyond the rote conventional formulaic modes of, of discourse that are so, so prevalent when everybody sits down to write an email. So he describes it as kind of a meditative process. Like you should just be present in what you're doing. Don't just dash something off. Maybe sit and think about it a little bit. Sounds like good advice. I don't know. What do you guys think? It's a lot harder. We, we three are, have trained our entire lives to write things. And that's not necessarily a better or worse thing to have trained your entire life to do than anything else. But it, it does mean that like, you know, we, we probably think, as you say, our emails are better than everybody else's, but also like, we're really trained up to do that form of thing. Um, and, and yeah, I guess I hope mine are more meaningful now. I like Mike, I've reached out to a bunch of folks who I'm not always in touch with to be in touch with with them. And I couldn't even articulate why, except that I'm stressed out and I genuinely do hope they're well. That's a great point. One of the CEOs who's quoted in this story talks about the ubiquity of this particular scenario. A lot of times in emails, when we reach out to people to acknowledge something that's happened, it's a specific event. It could be a loss. It could be a birth. It could be something else that's going on in their life. This is something that we are all going through right now we're all experiencing so when you reach out to friends who maybe you haven't connected with in a long time it's not like you're going to be like hey how's it i know how's it going how's the job uh or whatever it might be or how, how are the kids like you're you're like everything is cloaked right now in what is going on with this global pandemic and so we can all uh maybe find a little bit of comfort in this shared experience as sad as much of it is there's this moment i've been thinking about this is an old man reference, so forgive me, but the, in the the book, The Maltese Falcon, um, the detective Sam Spade tells this story. It's, the people who write about that book talk about it a lot, called The Flitcraft Parable. It's about a guy who goes missing, and, and Sam Spade, the detective, goes to find him, and he tells this story. And when he finds him, he's left his whole life. He's got a whole different life. And then and when he finds him, he has a new life, but the new life, Spade says, looks a lot like the old life. He's got a new wife, he's got a new kid, he's got a new job, but it's just like the old life was, essentially, just with different people. Flickhoff explains that he went on the run because a, a beam, a girder, fell from a construction site and almost killed him and knocked a little fragment up and gave him a little scar. And that's what gave him this existential moment where he had to run, but then he ran into something that was just like life was. And at the end of all this, Spade says that the thing that always fascinated him about Flitcraft was that he got used to beams falling, and then when no more beams fell, he got used to that too. And so now we are in a time of beams falling. And, and nobody knows what it will look like when we get used to that. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to take another quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to do recommendations. And I hope you'll stick around for that. All right, Adam, since you're our guest, what's your recommendation this week? We in my house are, are for, for me and my partner, rewatching and for my 14-year-old watching for the first time, the television show Community, which was a show that I deeply, deeply loved the first time around. I was excited to get to show to my kid. And the thing that I have fallen in love 
all over again with it is the crystalline structure of the writing. I understand that the writer's room was a little bit of a toxic, crazy house, but the result that they managed to get on the screen was a, was a, a I'm, I'm going to say it, maybe the best sitcom of all time. What's an example of the writing that you like? Well, there is an episode uh, called Modern Warfare, but I think I think we we stands call it the paintball episode. And in about 22 minutes of television, it manages to both um, parody, pastiche, and lovingly outdo the entire history of the action genre in both Asia and the United States. Um, it was actually. Uh, is written by a woman who's still writing for TV now and, and uh, directed by Justin Lin, who went, who went on to direct a Star Trek movie. And, and it's just sort of both the funniest, most loving, making fun of action and also being action and managing to have stuff from the beginning pay off at the end. And um, it's just a, uh, it's a real tour de force of how you put together a story. And I've been thinking about how to put together stories a lot lately. It's an excellent recommendation. Mike, what's yours? So I'm going to go out on a limb here and recommend a face-to-face social app called House Party. You may have heard of it. It is owned by Epic Games, the people behind Fortnite. And it's basically like a cross-platform FaceTime. So it shows the person that you're chatting with at the top of the screen, and then it shows you at the bottom of the screen. And you can have these really fun ad hoc one-to-one conversations with people. You can also have multiple people join in. You can play little games, but really it's just like a very easy friction-free way to chat with people. And it's outside of your normal places that you may chat, like places like WhatsApp, for example, which also has video chat. House Party is just more fun. It's easier to use. And the interface is nice because uh, it divides up the screen in a way that makes it easy to see both you and the person you're talking with. Um, I will say that uh, it is a vacuum cleaner for personal information. If you're not careful, it will suck up your contacts, your location, every phone number that's on your phone. When you first sign up for it, it it asks you to give over all this information. It also gives you a very tiny button down in the corner to skip. So I recommend that when you install it, you go skip, 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 skip. Give it uh, absolute minimum amount of information that will allow you to give and still use the app. And then find your friends by typing their names in the search box. Uh, That's really the only safe way to use it. But uh, it is a lot of fun and all the kids are on it. So if you have, uh, you know, kids in your life or young people in your life who want to get on House Party, don't be afraid of it. Download it. It's also fun as a man in his mid-40s, I chat with other friends in their mid-40s, and we are loving it. (laughs) So uh, House Party, that's my recommendation. Free to use, be careful of the privacy stuff, but a lot of fun. (laughs) Mike, I'm glad you put that caveat in there. I needed a laugh this week, and I'm I'm just really glad that you clarified that you're chatting with other men in their mid forties, and, <laughs> and after, not just teens. After, after acknowledging that it's big among the teens. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much for that recommendation. <laughs> what's What's yours, Lauren? I just got into The Wire. I never watched The Wire before. It's now available on Amazon Prime, and I just started watching it. And I really like it. And I really like Dominic West as an actor. I like the whole cast, actually. So, and I, I've just heard so many good things about this for years. And I've I'd never watched The Wire before. So I figure now is the time. And so far I'm into it, but I, I can't like, I can't comment on it as, as an entire body of work so far. It's the greatest sitcom in American television history. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> 
It's a fantastic show. And Lauren, you know what? There's a podcast coming out on the Ringer Network later this month that goes over every episode of The Wire. So I'll have to watch all of The Wire just so I can listen to that podcast later this month. Yes, I'm going to use the podcast's release as an opportunity to rewatch the show. I think that sounds like a good call. And honestly, there's not much else. Like right now, almost for meditative reasons, it's it's you're kind of taking it day by day or week by week, and, and it's hard to look too far ahead. So it sounds like maybe like a podcast launch a little bit later in the month is just the right amount of time to think about a piece of media to look forward to. Sorry, that was really depressing, but it's true. Time gets strange. Unprecedented times like these, time gets strange. All right. Thank you so much to Adam Rogers for joining us. He's really, really busy right now doing some fantastic science and health reporting for Wired, and yet he's taken the time to join Gadget Lab. So thank you, Adam. I'm just really glad to see you. Glad to see all of you over Zoom. And uh, thank you for listening to our audience. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. We'll be back next week. So until then, please stay healthy. And we really mean that. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.